This is part of a wall. We are enclosed by walls. We have some sitting over there. We have a roof over our heads. Outside of these walls, the sun is shining. The birds are singing. There's a cool breeze blowing. Unless we can make the connection between out there and in here, we are wasting our time. <clears throat> in Romans chapter 2, verse 14, speaking of the Gentiles or the, uh, the non-believers, that is, these would be people who uh, had not been brought up with Judaism and certainly had not accepted Christ at this point in this reference, says, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. I want to talk about one such man today. The focus of my thoughts will be from Acts chapter 10. <coughs> We're going to talk about Cornelius. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, prayed continually to God, and about the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. A centurion, this man, in the Roman government, a centurion. This was a man who had, uh, well, he would have been one of 60 officers in a Roman legion. Each centurion would have a command over 100 men. This would be comparable to our modern army captain today. And he was part of the Italian regiment or the Italian cohort, 10 cohorts of 600 men each made up this legion. <clears throat> it said that he feared God. He was devout and he feared God. What does this mean? Well, perhaps it could mean what is spoken of in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 that I mentioned as we began. But what is more likely, most likely, in terms of time and place and the circumstances here, is that what is being spoken here is actually a technical term that the Jews used to refer to pagans who had abandoned or 
perhaps even never did follow the pagan religions, but instead favored the worship of Yehoah. Now, such an individual, regardless of the strength of their godly character, their deeds, even their position in Gentile society, would still not be given even the limited treatment of a proselyte due to their not having been circumcised. Now, some Gentiles of that time had either never practiced or had grown tired of the idolatry of their culture, its foolishness and its immorality. And many, including Cornelius, had found something better in the teachings of the synagogues and had accepted the truth of the one true God. Although Jews were a distinct minority within the Roman Empire, they nonetheless attracted a significant number of sympathizers and converts to their community. Gentiles could have varying degrees of adherence to Judaism. They could be in the category known as benefactors. Another centurion is described who is in this category, and we read about him in Luke chapter 7. He supported the Jewish community and presumably was sympathetic to the Jewish beliefs. <clears throat> Others would be in this category like Cornelius, called God-fearers. We read about him, and this is our text that we're considering, Acts chapter 10. It says that of him in verse 2. There's other examples of that, such as Acts 13, 16, Acts 17, 4. Now, there is also an important mention of this category of God-fearers in an inscription from approximately 210 A.D., in modern Turkey that has been discovered. So this was the category of Cornelius. He was in this God-fearers category, but then there was the other category of a full proselyte, one who had converted to Judaism, had embraced all of the requirements. Josephus mentions a certain Izates of the royal family of Adibene who embraced Judaism and had himself circumcised in order to accept the full uh, Jewish way of life in the Antiquities 20.2, uh, 3 through 4. Now, <clears throat> consider, please, that the event of the conversion of Cornelius in Acts 10 would not have the significance that it does if Cornelius had been a full proselyte to Judaism. Consider that, please. <clears throat> Luke calls Cornelius devout. In other words, this man was correct. He was right in his attitudes toward God and toward man. And by grace, he was living a godly life. He feared, that is, he reverenced God as did his whole household, his family, his servants. Because of this man's influence, a large group of people attended the synagogue in his city every Sabbath. But the meetings were segregated. They had to sit 
in a certain section behind a partial wall in the back. They had not become yet full-fledged proselytes. They had not been circumcised. They did not keep the dietary laws. They came, they listened attentively, they learned, they gave generously. Well, Cornelius, it said, did. And, you know, they had a box in the temple, just like our box in the back here, and that wasn't segregated. They prayed to God. They sought his direction for everything in their lives. Look at verse 37 of the text. <clears throat> you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. This is the part of the actual sermon that Peter uh, eventually gets to preach before Cornelius and his household. Peter's statement here makes it clear that Cornelius knew about Jesus, therefore he knew about the gospel. Many scholars believe that this man Cornelius wanted to accept Christ and to receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but he had been told that first he must become a Jew. I agree with this supposition because of the context of this story. It is very possible, albeit likely, that his praying to God at this time that this chapter records was over his, his consideration of taking this step at this time of becoming a proselyte. But would that do? Would this satisfy some divine requirement for this man to be acceptable in the eyes of God? No, it would not do. And God would therefore not only find such as being unsatisfying, but in fact, he would consider this an abomination. So God had to prepare Peter. Peter was given a vision also, a vision where he saw a sheet coming down, being lowered from heaven, and on this sheet were all types of beasts. And the Lord said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. This happened three times. Each time Peter said, I've never eaten anything that is unclean his Jewish standard of living. And what was God's response to that? What I have called clean, you cannot call unclean. And this is what he took with him. When the man came to the door and said, let's go to the house of Cornelius. What does Peter do? What does he say before he ever enters the house? He stands there in the doorway and he says, you know, of course, that it is unlawful 
for a Jew such as myself to set foot in a house such as this. Unlawful, eh? Whose law was that? Can you find support in God's word for that idea in Peter's head? I can't. There were instructions about uh, what to do and not to do uh, pertaining to idolatrous pagan Gentiles. Yeah. But this was taboo. This was something contrary to Jewish, that is, man-made standards of custom and tradition. Remember that when you read in the 11th chapter, verse 3. Because what is the first thing that Peter's fellow Jews say to him when he comes back to report about what has just happened? You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And he had to explain to them that it's not me, it's God who has said this is okay. The conclusion that he speaks of after he makes this statement and he goes into this house, he starts his speech in verse 34 of chapter 10. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. This is the lesson of the animals on the sheet. And this is the, the word that, that he received. There's nothing new about this idea. Nothing new at all. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Second Chronicles 19, 7. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no, just, excuse me, no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. And Job 34, 19, who, that is God, shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. So it's taught by God in the Old Testament. And of course it is taught in the New Testament, for God shows no partiality. It says in Romans 2, 11, and in James 2 and 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So this is truth. It is not new truth, but it is truth that is just now taking on new dimensions for Peter. And again, in chapter 10 of, of Acts, look at verse 35, where he uses the word accepted. This means marked by favorable manifestation of the divine pleasure. So this is, the, this is the right conclusion that Peter received from his vision that God is saying that you Gentiles are to be a part of his kingdom now. 
and he has made you accepted in his kingdom. And so he has sent me to preach peace, verse 36, that is, Christ to you. By paying the price of sin through his sacrificial death, Christ established peace between man and God, and therefore also between man and man, Jew and Gentile, or whatever category we're talking about. <clears throat> and the substance of Peter's sermon here, of course, verse 37 through 43, is Christ. He preaches Christ and him crucified. In chapter 11, verse 14, the term household is used. It says that Cornelius and his household were baptized. This means all who were under Cornelius' authority and care who could comprehend the gospel and voluntarily believe it and obey. Now, this did not include infants. But if you recall, when we were reading verse 7, after Cornelius receives his vision, and then he sends some individuals to go to find this Simon Peter, what does it say? <clears throat> it says, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants. And who else did he call? A devout soldier. Did Cornelius' godliness include compelling everyone in his household to be just like him? He could compel them to attend the synagogue service, perhaps, but he did not compel them to live just like him. And there's a distinction drawn between members of his household those that are just members of his household and those that are devout, like him. And this is the same thing to keep in mind here when it talks about his household being baptized. Verse 18 of Romans 11. Remember those Jews when Peter came back with his report and they said, you were doing that Well, after the report, look in verse 18. What is their first response? They fell silent. What could they say? There was nothing more they could say, except when they finally did say, they said, God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. One of the most, if not the most, shocking admissions in Jewish history. But an event that the Old Testament prophesied would come. Isaiah 42 and 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. 
42.6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Nations are the Gentiles. 49.6, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And in Acts 2, 39, what does Peter say? For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far, who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The far off would be those Gentiles. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. <clears throat> Why are we looking at Cornelius? We're looking at Cornelius to aid our perspective. So switch the glasses you're wearing and put on the corny ones. Cornelius is the lens we need to look through here. Notice, we just looked at Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Gentiles like this man Cornelius, who converted to the cause of Christ, they did not become the circumcision, did they? They did not stop eating pork. They did not suddenly begin to, to don yarmulkes or to wear Jewish style clothing. They did not start wearing their hair or their beards in the manner of the Jews. They did not begin to build and arrange their houses like the Jews. They were not required to learn and speak Hebrew or Aramaic because such things are not to be considered as the proper definition of oneness in Christ. In fact, unless there are cultural, linguistic, ethnic, preferential, and individual distinctions between people in the kingdom of Christ, then the picture of spiritual unity, which transcends all of these things, is lost. <clears throat> Church. What is that? Romans 2, 22. If you, have your, if you have a King James in front of you, you'll see what I'm using here for sake of illustration more rapidly. But in the King James, the question is worded, dost thou commit sacrilege? It is the word sacrilege that I want you to notice in Romans 2, 22. In the ESV, the phrase is rob temples. 
Now look in your KJV at Acts chapter 19, verse 37. Acts chapter 19, 37. In the King James, the phrase is rob churches. So the phrase, dost thou commit sacrilege in Romans 2.22 and rob churches in Acts 19.37 in your King James are translated from the same phrase in the Greek. How is the phrase worded in Acts 19.37 in the ESV? They use the word sacrilegious in the ESV. So, dost thou commit sacrilege, rob churches, rob temples, sacrilegious, all from the same phrase in the Greek, variously translated in our English translations. What is going on here? Let me ask you this. Looking at the use of the word temples, is that referring to churches? No, it is not. So what are they? They are Greek word hieros, that is pagan temples. Referring to structures, buildings. The entire phrase then is hierosulos, hieros meaning temples, combined with sulos, the word for thieves or robbers, to form the phrase temple robbers or those who steal from temples or those who commit sacrilege. Now I, I mentioned this for three reasons. First of all, because of the context of my thoughts today and for what I'm going to expand on a little bit now in my second reason. The sometimes use in our English Bibles of the concept of sacrilege is in this verse. Now, you might have in your Bible a footnote for Romans 2.22 that directs your attention to Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, which reads, Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, How have we robbed you? in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So some of, your, some of the commentators, and maybe a footnote in your Bible on Romans 2.22 will direct you to this passage in Malachi suggesting it as an explanation for this phrase. But not only is this oblique, it is not supported by the other contextual usage of the same term in Acts chapter 19 verse 37. So rather than use Malachi 3, 8 through 10 as your go-to explanation for Romans 2:22, seek to know what the phrase really means. I suggest that you look again. You see, the Jews had a common practice of looting pagan temples and selling the idols and vessels for personal profit. They did this in direct violation of Deuteronomy 7.25, 
that says, the carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire, you shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. <clears throat> but this was just yet another way, another example of God's law being trumped by their traditions. It was motivated and supported by ethnic prejudice. It does not matter. They are but dogs. And it occurred under the pretext of religion. There is nothing new under the sun. Romans 2, 22, sometimes in your English we'll have it translated with the term sacrilege. Those articles were considered sacred by those Gentiles. You don't score points for God by desecrating what your neighbor considers sacred. And that's why it says in verse 24 that the word of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And the third point, <clears throat> the King James uses the word churches in Acts chapter 19, 37 for this word hierosulos. This is a poor and in fact misleading translation of the phrase hierosulos. In the King James, Acts 19.37 is the only time the Greek word hierosulos is translated churches. And hierosulos is referring to pagan structures, buildings. But there is another Greek word that is always translated church or churches in the Greek that we find translated church or churches in our English Bibles. What is that word? Ecclesia, or that's my Greek pronunciation of it. Thank you. And whereas hieros refers to a structure, a building, ecclesia never does. <clears throat> Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said in his conversation with Peter, I will build my church. So if this was referring to a physical structure, there could only be one, of course, and we would somehow all have to be inside those four walls when he comes again in order to be saved. Romans 16 and 5, we have this. Greet also the church that is in their house. Okay? So, somehow, we must transport this entire structure into Calvin's living room and then encircle it somehow and say, hello. Yes, and it will greet us back, too. With every fiber and beam, it will open its mouth and say, hello. Because it says in Romans 16, 23, the whole church greets you. What is the church? Is it these walls? 
Is it those things you're sitting on, that, that furniture that we call pews? Consider this building and all of this stuff as the skin. But what matters is the bones. Because what good is a whole lot of skin without any bones? What do I mean by skin? <clears throat> well, church buildings, songbooks, bones, compared to church buildings, we have the body of Christ, Ephesians 1.23. Songbooks, we have the command to sing, not play, Ephesians 5.19 and others. For instance, the difference between skin and bones. It comes down to what counts and what doesn't. So again, what counts? Church buildings? No. Songbooks? No. Singing only the songs in certain songbooks? No. But earlier, one of the songs that Craig was leading right across the page was another song with the same title, and it might make a difference which one you were looking at if you were trying to sing with everybody else. Does singing only certain styles of singing, is that, is that what counts? No. The pews you're sitting on, is that what counts? <coughs> <clears throat> How about this? The English language, does that count? The United States of America? Political affiliation or unaffiliation? No, those things don't count either in God's sight and perspective. Wearing the same kind of clothes? No. Having the same hairstyles? No. Eating the same kinds of foods? No. <coughs> Looking the same? Having the same color of skin? No. Any other imposed taboos or traditions of men? No. What counts then? <coughs> well, Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing that he is the son of God. Believing that he is equal with God. That he gave up that position of equality to come and be the sacrifice so that we could have access to God. Believing that he is the head of the church, his body, and knowing what that is, how it is described here in this Bible. Being a part of that church. Because when, when Jesus was speaking to Peter and he said, I will build my church, that is what he was talking about. Spiritually, we must all be in the church that he built. He paid for it with his blood. He is the one who gave the apostles his instructions for how to build it. And if something that we are doing or understanding 
is not described or supported by these instructions, it is not to be a part of the church. There are all kinds of expediencies, <clears throat> traditions, <clears throat> other things that we might consider, which don't necessarily have anything to do with this. The only time that we're going to have to really be concerned about those things is when they do something that goes against what the church should be. Whatever it is, it must not counter, it must not take away from what is Christ's. What counts is obeying his commandments faithfully and only. So we must believe that this is God's word. John 3.21 says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The Bible is where we find the doctrine for our beliefs and practices and anyone who is trying to deny the validity of any portion of the word of God is in reality simply trying to show validity for some not biblically authorized idea or practice. We must let the Bible speak. We must mark our path by its light. And if some practice or thought of our own is in conflict with the scripture, it is we who must change. Because the word of the Lord does not change. And we must never use the word of God as a cloak for avarice or greed or any other sin. This is what we're called to do to love God first. Christ's church, next. Our families, after that. Then, our national, cultural, ethnic identities. Finally, we must never, ever place anyone or anything, including ourselves, above our love for God and his word. And we must be faithful unto death, says Jesus, in order to obtain the crown of life, Revelation 2.10. We'll extend the invitation at this time as we stand.